0: The overarching uh, matter uh, regarding these CDC guidelines is certainly the concerns of substance as well as process. Um, By way of disclosures, our learning objectives today is to describe the 12 prescribing guidelines created by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Discuss the impact that the prescribing guidelines could have on the misuse and abuse of prescription drugs and unintentional overdose, and discuss the impact that the prescribing guidelines could have on the treatment of pain. Now, to begin with, some history. The CDC guidelines, like the war on drugs, has quite the history, but I will be brief and talk about just a few matters. On July 25, 2012, PROP petitioned the FDA. PROP is an organization that uh, physicians for responsible opioid prescribing. PROP is a program of Phoenix House, an organization that provides addiction treatment in several states. On the PROP letterhead, several board members, of course, were listed, and four are relevant here to this discussion. Number one, Andrew Kolodny, who was the president at the time, he's a psychiatrist who specializes in addiction treatment. Jane Ballantyne, Gary Franklin of Washington State, and, um, interestingly, uh, Lynn Polozzi of the CDC. The petition sought to establish a maximum 100 milligram morphine equivalent dose per day and limit the number of days for continued use to 90 days, among other things. Anything else would be beyond, considered beyond label. In the fall of 2014, two years later, we're advancing an independent and unbiased workshop panel convened by the NIH reported, among other things, that there were significant gaps in research and evidence. And I quote, what was particularly striking to the panel was the realization that there is insufficient evidence for every clinical decision that a provider needs to make regarding the use of opioids for chronic pain, leaving the provider to rely on his or her own clinical experience. Now, what's interesting here, among other things, is that they posted a draft of their report on their public website and solicited comments for two weeks. So, well, not to be outdone, the CDC, the same organization that generates instructions on how to deal with the zombie apocalypse, <laughs> created its own guidelines, And so what they did is they developed a core expert group. Nothing helps transparency better than secrecy. (laughs) Now, this particular group would review evidence and the draft guidelines that were provided by the CDC. We would later learn the secret group was composed of, you guessed it, PROP members. In fact, such as Jane Ballantyne, who's now president of PROP, and Gary Franklin. A draft was ultimately created. A draft was not posted on a website. But then, in September, September 16th, 2015, there was an opportunity for a public webinar, much like the CIA cone of silence from Get Smart. And in fact, this is how it worked. They still did not, the CDC did not provide a copy of the draft guidelines, but if you wanted to see them, you had to register for the webinar. And you had to be lucky enough to be able to get into that webinar to view them. Of course, there was limited space available. So, the, while you were in that webinar, sometimes the sound did not work, sometimes the screen did not work very much along the lines of this cone of silence idea. And for those who were successful enough to log into the webinar, they could view the actual recommendations, the 12 recommendations, um, for a short period of time. Now, um, the participants, if they were lucky enough, they could ask questions, but no answers were provided during the webinar. You can only ask. We will not answer. Now, comments could be made on the phone or via chat, but profanity was expressly prohibited during this webinar. Now, it's interesting, too, is that you could also provide an email comment about these Recommendations that flashed up on the screen temporarily. um, But you only had 25 hours to do it. So we will listen to whatever comments you have to make about these guidelines that we've just introduced, but you only have 25 hours. What's interesting in contrast, because the NIH workshop, they provided two weeks of comment period and posted the draft uh, on their public website, whereas the CDC... 25 hours only, and they were not posted on their website. Now, oftentimes when we're talking about open comment period, this is in the context of administrative regulation, is when the government wants to be able to implement a rule. They come up with an idea stemming from legislation, and they say, what do you think about it? That's an open comment period. Oftentimes these open comment periods last from 30 to 90 days. The CDC open comment period, 25 hours. it's this idea of, um, singer Renee Olsted said that, you know, uh, 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 20, every 24 hours, what a difference a 24 hours would make. She would, uh, the CDC, she would be so proud about that her musical genius is being used um, by the CDC. Now, due to technical problems, of course, the CDC repeated their web- webinar the next day. And they gave everybody else another 24 hours to be able to comment on it. Well, of course, the secretive process was not very well received uh, by the Payne community. On uh, November 17, 2015, the Washington Legal Foundation, a nonprofit public interest law and policy center, um, wrote a letter, um, filed formal comments with the CDC, and alleged that the CDC violated the transparency requirements of the Federal Advisory Committee Act by largely conducting its work in secret. In its letter, the WLF stated, quote, the CDC is violating FACA by failing to make public the work of its advisory committee, known as the Core Expert Group, otherwise known as CEG. WLF contends that the Core Experts Group meets FACA's definition of an advisory committee. FACA requires that the work of such committees be open to the public WLF argues such blatant violations of FACA taint the entire administrative process and requires CDC to restart the process from scratch. WLF cites one particular egregious FAC violation, CDC's failure to ensure fair balance among CEG members with respect to viewpoint, with the result that several CEG members are committed opponents of opioid prescriptions and suffer from blatant conflicts of interest. Ouch. Ouch. Well, we uh, were able to achieve an open comment period, uh, although albeit perhaps window dressing. On December 11th, 2015, the CDC caves and files formal notice in the Federal Register where there will be an open comment period for people. It will run close to the holidays, of course, from December 14th, 2015 to January 13th, 2016. The end result, over 4,000 comments were made. Then on December 18, 2015, a congressional committee sends a letter to the CDC out of concern that the CDC had assembled a panel that was not balanced, staffed by individuals whose identities remained secret even after a draft of the guidelines were released, and concerned that the agency had violated federal law. Well, ultimately, however, on on March 15, 2016, the CDC guidelines were released. And one of the remarkable things that my panelists will comment on was that the CDC made very strong recommendations based on very weak evidence. Uh, So once it was released, I was on their list. I'm sure I'm on their list for other reasons. (laughs) But I received an email announcing the release of the CDC guidelines, and so I initially wanted to read them, of course, now that this mystery had been solved. And so I clicked um, on the link in um, in their email, Uh, that was for assistance for prescribers well I'd be interested what type of assistance they had for prescribers so I clicked on that hyperlink and this is what I ended up with a broken link not so much help there so ultimately um, I'll, I'll conclude with this is that we're very concerned about impact I mean we're always concerned about outcomes certainly And uh, the government um, has uh, has good intent uh, most of the time uh, to be able to solve problems, but sometimes those problems can create, um, those solutions can create other problems. And in fact, the CDC's own briefing papers indicate the CDC's goal is widespread adoption of its guidelines in documents that were obtained by the Pain News Network, specifically quoting, efforts are required to disseminate the guideline and achieve widespread adoption and implementation of the recommendations in clinical settings. The thing is that there are some very good things in these guidelines. However, what my concern and what many of the panelists' concern are is the fact that many people were shut out of this deliberative process. To be able to provide that input, to be able to listen to all of these stakeholders um, instead of having these um, secret meetings that they were very much uh, criticized for. But I will close with this. There is hope. There is hope. Um, the, what was a legislation that was recently passed was the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. Now, um, the good news is that law was passed. The bad news is Congress has just defunded. Uh, Congress will oftentimes, politicians love to claim credit for adopting legislation, but oftentimes there's no funding for it, so it's just merely more window dressing. But why this is important is because of section 101 of that new law, hopefully that can be funded, is development of best practices for prescribing of prescription opioids and which they will involve a task force of several uh, stakeholders and other stakeholder communities to develop best practices for pain management and pain medication prescribing. Not perfect, but we do better when we listen to everybody. And that was one of the major concerns that I had uh, with CDC guidelines. Thank you.
1: Steven, I'm a twin, so I'm used to people getting our names mixed up, but there's a Steven and a Steven, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with that, okay. My brother's Nicholas Steven, so. Okay, so I'm glad there's only a couple people that are interested in this, um, so I'm not gonna be nervous about presenting in, such, in front of such a small crowd, so. But we thank you for coming today. Um, my goal, and let me get my slides here, I'm a physiatrist and pain medicine specialist uh, in Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm also a president-elect of American Academy of Pain Medicine. And it was good to hear what Steve had to say um, because he kind of relived the last six months or uh, eight months that many of us have gone through. Uh, But my goal is to actually discuss the physician's perspective on the CDC guidelines uh, or a provider's perspective. Many of you, um, hopefully this will just kind of make you relate a little bit to what's happening. um, uh, And I'll give you also some of my background from what's been happening in the state of Washington, which uh, I think we may start seeing in other states as well. Uh, also, here are my disclosures. Um, I was an invited invited consultant on the Opioid Guideline Work Group. That was uh, the last work group at the end. Um, I was invited 48 hours before the meeting, so I was really ready for that. Uh, but I'll give you some of my insight um, as an invited um, uh, representative uh, in that specific group. Okay, so again, I'll we'll talk mostly about the physician's perspective, uh, but I think also to get us thinking, how do we put these guidelines into context so we can use them appropriately but also understand some of the pitfalls. So what is evidence-based medicine? And um, I'm actually discussing later about evidence-based medicine. I'm not a PhD, but uh, as a clinician, we hear evidence-based medicine mentioned a lot in what is the evidence. Is it a randomized controlled trial? Is it a good case series? Is it a prospective study? Uh, or is it a consensus statement, um, which includes some articles? Uh, and if you think about evidence-based medicine, it's really how do we, integrate uh, our clinical expertise into the best available evidence. And here with the guidelines, they did integrate some of the evidence. The question was, how well was that integrated and and are there some issues with that? So I think we always have to be thinking in the back of our mind because there's hundreds of guidelines that have been um, published now. What is the evidence? How do we look at evidence correctly? Or understand the evidence is only the evidence. We practice seeing individual patients. And so uh, many of you have seen this with different articles. They talk about how evidence can be graded. Uh, You can look at level of evidence. And unfortunately, there's this bias. Um, The randomized control trials are at the kind of top of the hierarchy. Uh, And then as you move down, the lowest would be no controls, case series only. But in some cases, we can learn from case series Uh Uh, But again, there's this evidence hierarchy that's been established. We can grade the evidence. Uh, Is it supported by at least one level one randomized trial? I'm a physiatrist. I run a pain rehab program in our pain clinic. I can't do a randomized controlled trial in a pain rehab program. Um, So again, some of these issues need to be thought of. But the other way to grade evidence is it's supported um, by at least one level two or is it um, graded C, supported by level three, four, or five evidence. So uh, different ways have been discussed uh, and there's been adjustments to that as well. So going back to the CDC guidelines, and I think as clinicians um, uh, in treating pain patients, it's a challenge. uh, And then throwing in some of the controversies with regards to opioids um, become even more problematic. As a clinician though, many of us have seen there's evidence that opioids work. Most of these are randomized placebo-controlled trials um, done from industry, uh, some done uh, from academic institutions as well. And so for many years we've been seeing that there's evidence in selected patients, there's high dropout rates, but there's evidence. There's a number of different products that have been approved by the FDA um, over the years. There's a significant number of opioids. So we know that there's evidence that they work, so the question is how can we turn around and say, well, there's no evidence. So, just to keep that in mind. Um, I thought this was a good quote, just to kind of put us on uh, as a clinician where we should be thinking. Uh, Kathy Foley in her group in an editorial said, every patient with pain has the right to have both their pain assessed and their pain relieved. And I think a lot of the issues with this controversy is the patient has been forgotten. Um, and no patient has the right to an opioid drug if that treatment is not appropriate. Um, and we've been involved in a couple of different clinics where we've taken over clinics and management of patients. And many of those patients maybe weren't the best candidates and had other issues. Um, Patients are dying from overdose, they're dying from misuse. Um, So again, it's not a perfect uh, intervention, but we need to be assessing patients individually um, to see if they're appropriate candidates. Uh, Steve did a great job of explaining the kind of history of um, uh, PROP and and how that led to, I think, CDC guidelines. If you go back and break down the three um, components of the original petition that PROP had, uh, they asked to strike the term moderate from indication for non-cancer pain. Uh, and then to add a maximum daily dose equivalent of 100 milligrams morphine equivalents and add a maximum duration of 90 days. And this happened in 2012. There's significant um, feedback from um, societies, and the FDA put together, um, I thought, um, a very good response to PROP, uh, which I think all of us as providers should be aware of because they break down nicely a response to the three different petitions uh, made by PROP and why they, in a sense, really disagreed with those. So the FDA response, and I I, I put a lot of text in here because I think it's important as a setup to talk about the CDC guidelines, Um, they explain very clearly that opioid trials um, based on randomized controlled clinical um, trials of 12 weeks, for chronic pain it's difficult to ensure subject participation in controlled trials beyond 12 weeks, FDA is not aware of adequate and well-controlled studies of opioid use longer than 12 weeks. Um, Unfortunately, when the CDC looked at their guidelines, they removed any study that was less than 12 weeks. Well, sponsors have not been asked to do those studies. There are some safety studies that are up to a year, um, but it actually changed significantly the data that was actually looked at. And so I think that, in a sense, um, um, put some question into the applicability of these guidelines um, and the evidence uh, that they said that didn't exist for opioids. Um, That same type of evidence could be placed on other antidepressants and other medications that we prescribe all the time, there's no evidence in more than 12 months uh, in the literature. And so are we gonna be placed to that same threshold um, with other types of interventions? They also said there, in the FDA response, there's a relationship between increasing opioid dose and a risk of um, certain adverse events. Available information does not demonstrate a relationship as necessarily a causal one. Uh, and this is before um, this kind of, um, deep dive into opioid um, dosing thresholds, uh, which have also, I think, um, come up now have become very controversial. With um, opioid MED and deaths, uh, the FDA said that there is a greater association with greater than 100 MEDs versus one to 19, which is lower, um, but the point of which the increase in death changes, the benefit to risk um, assessment cannot be determined. And so there's been a lot of controversy with setting dose thresholds and is that safe or should we be treating, uh, um, teaching our uh, physicians that really any dose is at risk, and you need to be looking at each patient individually. So the, um, the FDA's response to the proposition was to change the indication for long-acting opioids. Uh, so it's now for severe uh, enough pain to require daily, around-the-clock, long-term opioid treatment for which alternative treatment options are inadequate. And then they included a um, box warning, which mostly includes addiction abuse Uh, In misuse, um, respiratory depression, which is obviously the number one cause of death with opioid overdoses, Um, accidental exposure, neonatal opioid withdrawal, and interactions with alcohol. Um, And we saw, and I'm in the state of Washington, there was different states um, setting um, dosing thresholds. Uh, In our state, it's over 120 morphine equivalents. If you get past that and the patients aren't doing well, they should get a consult or a telemedicine consult. Um, And I think that did a lot to actually decrease the total doses that we were seeing. Uh, And I think there was good caution um, with different primary care providers and actually pain specialists um, in trying to limit doses. Um, But again, that science is somewhat controversial because we know there's significant variability from patient to patient. There's genetic susceptibility, genetic variability uh, with regards to opioid response. And is that going to set up kind of a false sense of security? And I see in my own state, a lot of our physicians think of a pain patient and then they think of what their MED is. It's almost like they're marked according to their MED which I think sometimes can be problematic because there's other issues we should be thinking about um, besides somewhat of an artificial MED dose. So the CDC guidelines came out, like Steve talked about, and what is the mission? The mission is to protect the health, safety, and security. And so I think its number one aim was to decrease opioid epidemic crisis of overdose deaths. Uh, And then it turned into a guideline. Uh, and I think the terminology as a physician to me became problematic because it said the guideline was intended for primary care clinicians who were treating patients with chronic pain. But the title states it's a guideline for opioids in chronic pain. So is it for primary care? Is it for specialists? That's, I think, adding to the confusion. Um, Steve did a good job of explaining the controversy with the whole process, uh, with the congressional um, letter regarding um, the legitimacy of the CDC um, uh, reproducing guidelines, uh, the transparency issues, and also the Federal Advisory um, Committee Act problems. Uh, And again, early on, different pain societies and groups talked about the problems with the 50 and 90 morphine equivalents, uh, yet they still stuck pretty much with that in the final um, version uh, of the document. Uh, And I think the most important part was the criticism of removing from the AHRQ um, report that was done in, 2009, uh, removing any data or any studies that weren't more than 12 months, which again, I think completely changed uh, the evidence, um, and, but it was implied that uh, it was really an updated review of the evidence. What they did was they removed um, studies that don't exist and that uh, again, then saying that there was no evidence. Uh, so again, as the different pain societies, uh, American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Medicine, a lot of the different groups um, during the comment period, uh, we're working together. There's a multi-specialty working group, which I think is 12 or 13 uh, societies, mostly related to pain, that also put together a draft letter in uh, a response, a formal response. Um, our hospital system um, also knows that this is a potential issue for undertreatment of pain for our patients in fear that if these guidelines were used in the wrong way, that could um, obviously have deleterious effect on patient care. So a lot of different groups gave comments, uh, like Steve al- alluded to. Um, I so said in the studies that they reviewed, they they excluded those studies. They said that they had to be. I'm sorry, they excluded any study that wasn't more than 12 months. Yeah, which and there's there's very small to none. Uh, there's safety studies that um, a lot of these companies have to do with newer uh, medications that are up to a year. Uh, and this actually just goes through looking at guideline. Um, from the IOM standpoint, what is the, the eight components? And again, transparency is important, disclosure, conflict of interest, and I think Steve talked a lot about that, uh, guideline development, the composition of the groups, all those things need to be considered. Um, so the process, again, was primarily based on um, the APS, APM opioid guidelines prior to that, and then the AHRQ, the systematic review, uh, like I talked about from 2014. They then looked at the HRQ. And then made the adjustment with removing those studies that weren't longer than 12 months, uh, and then looked at a small perc- uh, number of patients, uh, of, of studies that were done um, uh, since the 2014 um, HRQ review was published. The core expert group, like um, Stephen talked about, you know, 17 members, sir, um, the president of a prop uh, was included in that. There was really no pain physicians, uh, which again I think was problematic as a, from a provider standpoint, um, as well as there was really no addiction. Uh, um, separate from PROP members, uh, addiction people involved at the core expert group. Uh, the stakeholder review group was set up to look at the applicability of the guidelines, uh, and then down at the bottom, at the final stage of the review was the opioid guideline working group, and that was the group that I was invited to um, present any questions or uh, insights with rehabilitation-related uh, questions. Uh, I was asked or told not to speak unless I was spoken to. So I felt like my parents, uh, you know. so I didn't say too much. But um, the group at that time, and I had, um, I had signed a confidentiality agreement, but there were pain clinicians involved, and the discussion was excellent. A lot of the um, issues, and we went through the recommendations, um, they gave, it, I think, very rational um, arguments about some of the dosing thresholds, uh, some of the things that all of us are upset about. So I was optimistic that those things would be heard. But in a general sense, I don't really think the document changed that much um, after the um, uh, OGW gave their insights. There were some minor changes, but some of the core issues uh, remained, which, again, to me kind of put a little question in my head about um, the legitimacy of this, um, at least a couple of the recommendations. So these are the um, 12 recommendations. They look at when to initiate um, selection as well as risk management. Uh, Again, when we look at evidence, we can look at the different types. Again, there's this bias of looking at um, the graded higher-level randomized controlled trials. If we break down from the final evidence type, um, they graded it from one to four. Um, Most of those were three or four, three being there's confidence in the effect estimate is limited, and the true effect might be um, substantially different from the estimate of the effect and four is even weaker. One has very little confidence in the effect estimate. So of the 12 recommendations, I think 11 were at least three or four. So low or poor um, uh, applicability. Uh, And this breaks through the the first set um, that looked at assessment. Uh, There's um, a recommendation about non pharmacological therapy for non-opioid should be done before opioids, which I think is good. Um, Again, though, the level of evidence that those types of interventions, which I do a lot in my clinic, were not held to the same one year of data, uh, but did show that we should consider those before opioids um, in in patients. Where I think there was controversy was, again, with prescribing um, recommendation number five, um, using caution at any dose, but to reassess benefits of patients over 50 and to carefully consider and justify use in greater than 90. And with morphine equivalent dosing, depending on what table you use, uh, you can get to 90 pretty quickly. Uh, So again, I think there is that controversy with regards to um, uh, is there a false sense of security with setting these types of limits uh, and did the data really show uh, that there is a difference um, with these higher doses or there's, is there a causal relationship? Okay. The other controversial area was long-term, um, number six, long-term therapy begins with treatment of acute pain uh, and they talked about um, we well, should only prescribe three days or less which will often be sufficient or greater than seven days is rarely um, needed, and a lot of that was based on emergency room studies that were done to do bridging for patients with low back pain to get to their primary care doctor with three days of, of medications uh, so not a lot of evidence um, that we as clinicians can decide seven days or three days with any patient, um, any kind of pain condition uh, can vary with regards to what a patient needs. Um, we do think that it 's important that patients aren 't given sixty, medic- 60 pills. Uh, for acute pain, and they use one or two and put them in their medicine cabinet, uh, and then we have diversion and other problems. But again, a lot of controversy about even picking three in seven days. Or should we be teaching the physicians to give the medication the amount the patient needs and carefully get the patient back for reassessment? You know, Kind of making it more as an individually based uh, versus setting these false um, numbers. Uh, and the last part was more on risk um, mitigation. I think a lot of this is what most of the pain providers and uh, clinicians have been teaching. Uh, uh, they also talked about considering naloxone, which again, controversial, if we should be giving naloxone to all patients on more than 50 morphine equivalents per day, or they're higher risk patients, um, that that should be justified. Um, if you look at the text of the CDC guidelines, and most of us have just read and we're familiar with the 12 recommendations, it says there specifically, the CDC's recommendations are made on the basis of a systematic review of the best available evidence. Um, the clinical decision-making should be based on a relationship between the clinician and patient, and an understanding of the patient's clinical situation, functioning in life context. But within the recommendations, they don't really state that. That, that I think the importance of individually looking at each patient. Um, the go- document also specifically says the recommendations of the guidance are voluntary, rather than prescriptive standards. And what have we seen since the CDC guidelines were released? it's pretty much been prescriptive standards. It's been used across the country um, that we have to be using the CDC guidelines. I'm not against the guidelines, but I think uh, there's some confusion about how they've been um, promoted, and even within here, it kind of contra, uh, contradicts what their actual recommendations say. It is not voluntary. It's being used by insurance companies and uh, in the like. And then clinicians consider the, the circumstance of unique needs for each patient when providing care, which is important, but again, it's kind of hidden within the uh, document. So if we look at the six domains of the um, guidelines, um, this looks at was there explicit scope and purpose, was there stakeholder involvement? I think there was some controversy with that. The rigor of the development is well written. Um, they went through a lot of data, but then how did they use certain parts of the data, which I think throws into question the total rigor. The clarity of the presentation, the, yes, there was clarity. Um, the applicability, I think remains to be questioned, um, and was there editorial independence? so I think These are useful, but we have to just be mindful of the different components um, of the guidelines. And the AMA came out, and I think also was very strong in supporting the caution with the um, the recommendations and the risk of potential undertreatment of patients, and I think stigmatization of patients with pain uh, that this may lead to, if they're used in the wrong way. Uh, The checklist has been developed by the CDC, which I think um, is a good overview for clinicians to use Uh, But I think, again, we have to just be mindful um, of the right column, uh, which um, backs up some of the evidence, which I think is controversial. But the left side gives, I think, physicians a nice overview of the basic components of what they should be doing um, with regards to trying to uh, minimize risk uh, diversion in selecting patients appropriately. So the implications for patients, is this gonna be a more cautious and thoughtful approach for patients? is there a greater education for patient and family members of the dangers of misuse and abuse? Um, I think the other implication may be in some patients, the undertreatment of pain for patients um, that maybe could benefit from the therapy. Uh, again, stigmatization is, I think, something we need to be looking at over the next number of months as the kind of dust settles with these guidelines. And I think many providers um, not treating chronic pain patients and they're overwhelmed and they're thinking, I'm not gonna deal with this, this is too controversial for me I don't want to treat the patients. Uh, And we're seeing that in the state of Washington as well. So um, I do want to state something, too. I think there's been some confusion with regards to opioid deaths. And a lot of the fentanyl deaths we've seen in in the public uh, domain with regards to overdose, which which has been a a tragedy for many people. Um, But I think if you look here, and I'm sorry about the print, um, this actually um, is mostly around some of the uh, clandestine labs that are making fentanyl and very powerful fentanyl that is being abused and misused, and patients are dying from that. Um, in the, in this.